0: Okay, so I've had six hours sleep, you want to get your dinner, so we'll get through this as best we can, and um, maybe forget this Sunday happened. Um, We are in part three uh, of our series, In the Book of Daniel, uh, that we're calling A Creative Minority. Uh, Last week, Tammy did an amazing job talking essentially uh, about what faith looks like when we have to say no to some of the demands of our culture. Uh, When our culture wants to go one way and we know we need to go another. Um, So she she was talking about what it means for us to have a kind of resilient faith. And uh, we've been kind of trying to define what this word, a creative minority, is. Uh, A single sentence definition I came up with uh, was this, a community of people living out a resilient faith in a culture that is living in a different story. And and so we're kind of trying trying to kind of figure out what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to be a creative minority? Uh, Rabbi Jonathan uh, Sachs, he says this, you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It's, uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. So a creative minority is, are really a committed people who remain faithful to their own beliefs and convictions, regardless of the competing stories Uh, and the the cultural messages that are going on around them. Uh, And so uh, we've been using the the story of Daniel uh, and his friends to kind of show us what a creative minority might look like. Daniel, as we heard, was a a Jewish exile, um, being slowly immersed into Babylonian culture. And as we saw in the first week in chapter 1, uh, Daniel, you know, he would have looked like a Babylonian. He would have dressed like a Babylonian. He even took on a Babylonian name. But as we saw in chapter 1, he refused to eat the food uh, from the king's table. He, he, he refused to imbide or, or to ingest the king's food and fully embrace the culture. And it kind of, we kind of wrestled with why... Why did, why did Daniel do this? And, and really, what we, what we discovered was that if he ate from the king's table, um, he, he, would have, he would have completely lost his identity. He would have completely lost who he was. As, uh, as one commentator said, he said, accepting uh, the palace provision involved a compromise of faith in a way that accepting a share in its life, its work, its education... Uh, and its names do not. Believers in other contexts or other cultures might have identified a sticking point elsewhere. The point is a line had to be drawn somewhere. Total assimilation is to be avoided. And so there's this idea that for Daniel, the, the line in the sand was, I'm not going to eat the food uh, that the king, the king provides. If I do that, I'm going to lose my identity. I'm going to lose who I am. And so what we see through the book is that Daniel is willing to live with the tension, uh, the tension that exists with him attempting to, to be faithful to God whilst living in exile in Babylon, whilst living in a culture that is not his own. And, he, and in many ways, as followers of Jesus, we recognize that we we no longer live in, in a culture that's defined by the Christian story. You know, that, that we, we live in a a culture that's changed. And as a result, we find ourselves living as a minority in our culture, telling a different story. We, we, we speak a different story. And, and it's a competed story. We live in contested space. Uh, we, live in places where, we live in a place where uh, the story that we, we, we look to uh, and the way that we've defined culture is, is changing around us. And so as we wrestle with that reality, the temptation is that we try and resolve the tension rather than live in the tension. And, and, we, and, and we, um, we, we try and resolve it. And, and one of the ways that we typically resolve it is to give in, is to compromise, is to, to let things go, to kind of loosen the grip on things that maybe we've held dear and that things that have been kind of doctrinal, orthodox of the church, we suddenly let slip through our hands because it it helps us deal with the tension that we feel. But actually, that isn't what a creative minority does. Uh, They they practice what what we might call cultural resilience, Uh, and they look for creative solutions to show and tell an alternative story, God's story. The story that we believe leads to humans flourishing. Uh, the story that we believe leads, brings, brings life. And so this week, we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever, uh, turn to Daniel chapter 6. You know, we often say in our family of churches uh, that faith is spelled. R-I-S-K risk. And, and, and as, we, as we read the story of Daniel uh, and his friends, we see that they take repeatedly some significant risks. You know, refusing to eat the food from the king's provision, uh, refusing to bow down to a statue erected to worship uh, the king. Daniel and his, his three friends, they, they Remain resolute to serve the one true God and, and not sway and they 're not swayed by anything else, um, even at the very risk of their own their own lives and so we see time and time again actually, as they do this, as they choose to take these risks, it actually works out in their favor because every time they choose to trust God and not compromise, he leads them. Into two things. Two things seem to happen. First of all, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've met, um, he acknowledges repeatedly acknowledges God as the Most High God, and uh, and and it also leads Daniel and his friends to be promoted to a place of prominence and influence in the kingdom of Babylon because they stuck to their guns metaphorically speaking, uh, it led to an increased place of position and influence. And you see, as the, as the church, we've always grappled with the tension that our culture gives us. We've always, we've always found it hard. Um, and, and, and as the culture changes, we can respond in some different ways. One of the ways the church can respond is to uh, withdraw itself as much as it can from the world around them and attempt to keep itself pure by living in a Christian bubble. A bit like going to Somerset for a week. Uh, by Wednesday I was like, man, I've had enough of Christians. Um, everyone's so polite. You know, no you go through the door. No you go through the door. Um, no. But you know we have this we have this danger, don't we? Our response to culture is that we kind of withdraw ourselves. We we, we isolate ourselves. We create a nice, safe, Christian bubble. And so, the way the church with this kind of mentality deals with the tension is it creates a Christian subculture where we only go to Christian events, like last week. We only interact with Christian friends. We only send our kids to Christian schools. We only listen to Christian music, heaven forbid. And, um, uh, and, and we avoid things like pubs, okay? I'm just looking at you, um, cinema, um, and anything secular. Uh, and in the process, we, we become a people who define ourselves by what we're against. And we position ourselves in a way that we critique culture. That, that's the kind of position that we take. Let's, let's just withdraw ourselves and criticize from a distance. And, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon, um, In Jesus' day, there were a couple of groups like this. One was a group called the Essenes, uh, and the Essenes dealt with the tension by withdrawing. They went into the desert, set up colonies away from everyone else. You know, they they kind of created their own heaven on earth. Uh, There was another group that kind of similar to this, and that was a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were hyper religious group of Jewish people uh, who define themselves by everything that they were against in society. Uh, and the problem is, is that they rooted their belief system in everyone else being the problem. You know, you're the problem that this has happened. It's, it's those no good sinners, you know, those people out there. And so that's one way that we can respond to the, the problem. We can respond to this tension of the kingdom. Another way we can respond is to is we attempt to be relevant, and we attempt to blend in. And you know, I said, and I said this a, a few weeks ago. Some forms of cultural relevance is healthy. Um, you know, we want churches to act and speak a language that people understand. And you know, we would rather be relevant than irrelevant. Okay, so we want to. We want to. There is a there is a sense that being relevant is a helpful thing. Yet, often in our attempts to be re- relevant, at some point, we will bump into something that doesn't fit, that creates conflict uh, with what we believe is true. And often, what happens is we have a choice. We we have a choice to either continue, um, you know, and stick to what we believe, or we water down. Uh, uh, what we believe. And we have this kind of, I don't know, whitewashed kind of version of our faith. And again, this isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, again, in Jesus' time, there was another group of people called the Erodians. And, 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 and they were the kind of the collaborators. They were the sellouts. They collaborated with Rome. They gave their identity, you know, they gave away their identity and allowed the prevailing culture Around them to shape them and to shape what they become. And it's easy for us, as the church, to be in that place. We want to be liked, don't we? You know, we want. Please like us. Um, That's kind of the message that we say to our culture: that, that we want to be accepted. We we don't want to be seen as this kind of outdated, conservative group of people. The problem is when we go too far with cultural relevance, we, um, we end up becoming relevant to a culture that actually, I believe, leads to death. It's a culture that leads to death. It's not a culture that leads to life. And so we, we can invest way too much in trying to be relevant to our culture. And so, there, and so as we've been exploring, there is another way. A third way, uh, the way, the way of Jesus, we could say. See, Jesus had this, this reality. He was pure, spotless, sinless. Yet at the same time, he had the reputation of being a friend with sinners. You know, there's something about Jesus that went against the grain. Yet at the same time, the people he hung out the most with. We're all the the wrong people in the culture. And so our response to the tension, our response to the, the conflict isn't to withdraw and critique from a distance, and it isn't to just be relevant so we simply blend in and in doing so lose our distinctiveness. That isn't our goal. And you see, Daniel and his friends also discovered this, this reality. And, and this is really the way of a creative minority, which, which sorts to live uh, in, in a culture through what we might call redemptive participation. That we, we want to be part of culture, we want to create culture, we want to contribute to the world around us, but we want to do it in a redemptive kind of way. They didn't isolate or critique. And they didn't bow the knee to simply blend in. Instead, they discovered another way of being in the midst of cultural tension. And so they learned learned to affirm. They affirmed what could be affirmed. And maybe we look around our culture, and there's things about our culture that we want to affirm. They think, that's good. That's beautiful. It brings out the best in humanity. And so there's things in our culture we affirm. They opposed. There's things in their their culture that that they opposed, they didn't want to step into. And maybe we can look around and think, yeah, there's things in our culture I I oppose. But they also created. They created alternative outcomes uh, to, to the cultural story around them. And every time they lent into an alternative story, prosperity came. God seemed to do something. Something happened, something moved. And so, as a result, um, you know, we see things like King Nebuchadnezzar becoming a worshiper of the one true God. And, and Daniel and his friends continually being promoted to a place of prominence and influence in Babylon. They became culture creators in a foreign land. They, they began to have a, a redemptive participation in, in their culture. And so, if there's a hope. For the church in the 21st century, then it has to be, I believe, that there is this other way of being, um, this way of embracing and becoming a creative minority who, who figure out what it means to, to redemptively take part in our world. So Daniel chapter 6. It's probably one of the most famous portions of the story of Daniel. If you've been in Sunday school, you know this story. Um, It's a famous story, often headed, Daniel and the lion's den. And uh, and as we pick up in chapter six, we see uh, there's a new king, King Darius. He sounds like a villain in Doctor Who. Um, But King Darius, um, he is a new conquering king. Babylon has actually been conquered at this point. And Darius appoints 120 officials uh, to rule his kingdom, and he puts in place three administrators, and one of them is Daniel. Uh, And because of Daniel's reputation, his character, uh, Darius actually plans to put Daniel in overall charge. He he basically wants to make him second in command of his kingdom. And, of course, Daniel's peers uh, and those working Uh, alongside him, aren't happy about this. And so they basically go and look for the dirt. They kind of figure out, what can we find out about Daniel to discredit him? Maybe, you know, a compromising picture on Facebook, or, you know, maybe there's a a dodgy expense claim, but just something that would bring Daniel's integrity into question. But it says this in verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, they they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. They had no dirt on Daniel. There's nothing they could find uh, to discredit him. So they realized the only way to undermine Daniel was to attack his faith, was to attack what he believed. And, and, and so they uh, intentionally created a situation that would trap Daniel. They persuaded the king to issue a decree uh, that if anybody worshipped a god or a human other than the king for the next 30 days, they should be thrown into the lion's den. And and, and so these guys, um, who are basically jealous of who Daniel is, um, they're out to get him. Now, Daniel, you know, he's an interesting character, isn't he? He's this. He's this Jewish exile. He's, he's, become, he's becoming the second in command um, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the king's regime. And it says he's a, he's a man full of integrity. He's a man of character. How many of us know what it's like to be misrepresented? You know, to have someone say something about us that isn't true. Uh, to, critic- to criticise us, to ridicule us, maybe for what we believe. Maybe you've faced ridicule from peers or, or work colleagues. You know, anybody had someone say to you, like, you believe that? You know, you know this kind of, like, really? In this day and age, you believe those things? Um, maybe you faced ethical challenges in your workplace uh, when you find, you know, your convictions... And the things that you hold as important are different to the place where you work and different to those of your colleagues or, or your boss who calls the shots. And, um, and we find ourselves you know, in, the, in this place of pressure where it's easy to compromise. And because as we've been saying all along, that this cultural tension that exists, thats it's here, it's in the room, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? We, you know, we we wake up in the midst of a competing story. As I said, it's com- it's contested space, and, it, and and so it's really hard to deal with the tension. And yet Daniel lives in this tension, and he seems to live it well. He seems to live the tension well. John Stott, um, um, an old Anglican theologian, um, he, he 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 said this about the church in light of culture. And I think it, it kind of sums up Daniel's position and lifestyle. It says, it says here, Instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status quo, the church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals, values, standards, and lifestyles, a realistic alternative to a contemporary culture which is marked by materialism, self-centeredness and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. Such a church, joyful, obedient, loving and free, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. And so, when we see crisis come, when we see the culture fighting against us, just like Daniel, we we, we have to realize there's a different response. You know, Daniel has been stitched up by the other officials and he responds completely differently. Verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel learned of the decree that had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done. Before, you see, Daniel could have, in this moment, attempted to run for it. You know, run for the hills. He could, he could have tried to use his position of power to alter things. He 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 could have tried to counteract the king's decree. You know, try and convince the king uh, to make a different choice. He could have complained. He could have felt sorry for himself. He could have done all these things because he's been treated so unjustly in this moment. He's been set up by his work colleagues. But instead, he turns his face towards God and he prays. And he prays three times a day. And so I guess the question is, uh, or the question that might flow out of this, is how do we continue to live as this creative minority when crisis comes our way? When crisis comes towards us? See, none of us become the kind of people who choose to go into a lion's den over the option of compromising overnight. You know, if we if we did a poll right now, and we'll take a photo. No, if we, uh, if we did a poll, you know, I said, lion's den or compromise. I'm pretty sure the vast majority of us will think, mm, compromise. Um, we're not into being eaten alive by lions, okay? But as we look at the life of Daniel, we see in a moment of crisis, he makes some other priorities. He, he makes this priority to pray, Three times a day, he gets down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he'd done before. Now, I don't know how you picture Daniel, but I picture him as this kind of athletic, young, handsome kind of guy. A bit like me 10 years ago. Um, And... um, And he could have been all those things. He could definitely have been all of those things. But at this point in the story, it's believed that Daniel was probably in his 90s, around 90 years of age. Why is that important? Well, it says this. Three times a day, he gets down on his knees and he prays, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. You see, Daniel had prioritized prayer morning, noon, and night, just as he'd done before. In other words, in this moment of crisis, this wasn't, oh, my goodness, panic, I need to pray. It was actually a lifestyle, a commitment that he was already living. And my guess, he'd spent the last 70 years morning, noon, and night prioritizing prayer in this way. And you see, someone who has invested that much of their personal time to communion with God won't compromise easily. You see, prayer isn't just this dutiful thing that we are called to do. Prayer is actually key to growing in relationship with God. And, and, and if we are to be the kind of people who live in this cultural tension, who, who live with this competing cultural story around us that plays a completely different tune, we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be men and women who find ourselves on our knees in prayer. As I said, Daniel and his friends you know they did compromise on some things they 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 dressed like babylonians they 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 speak like babylonians they 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 have names of babylonians but there there were certain things for them that they're not going to change and you see they refused to compromise on at least three things they they refused to compromise on their worship their identity and their purpose and that's just not—that's not just this kind of like bloodied-minded defiance. You know, Daniel actually presses into these things in the moment of conflict, in that moment of tension. You know, he he invests in his worship, he invests and reminds himself of his identity and his and his purpose, the call that God has given. It says three times a day he gets down on his knees and he prays. You see, that's the position of worship. And and, and Daniel is continually positioning himself in a place of worship of the king. In a land that says Darius is king. In 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 a land that worships different gods. In that place, Daniel presses in and worships without compromise. It also says that he prayed with his window open towards, towards Jerusalem, where he's reminding himself of his identity, reminding himself of where he belongs, who his people are, that Jerusalem was his home. Now, we don't, we don't pray and open our windows facing Jerusalem, but as followers of Jesus, we're taught to do things the same. Jesus, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness you see seeking first the kingdom is to orientate our hearts and our minds and our actions towards God's kingdom and that we're called to orientate ourselves that way and and we find our identity and purpose in seeing his kingdom outworked in our world and daniel is committed to this no matter what even If there's a law in place that says you can't do it, he's like, I'm going to do this anyway. Now, here's the thing. I wonder, this is where we get the knife and we twist it a little bit. I wonder how many of us find it easy for our schedule to bump our spiritual practice of prayer. You know, For for many of us, it doesn't take a law... To stop us praying, all it takes is our, you know, our, our our schedules to cause a little bit of busyness and distraction. It's true, isn't it? You know, we don't we don't need some dictator to say you can't do that because we we find it easy to get distracted. But the thing is, that a creative minority um, needs this spiritual discipline of prayer because prayer for a creative minority acts as resistance to the message of the culture around us it's the seabed of redemptive participation in our world you see we won't have what it takes we won't have the backbone we won't have the energy or the vision to participate in the world unless we have this discipline of prayer in place You see, this is what the prophet, and we'll we'll look at this next week in Daniel chapter 9, but this is what the prophet was saying um, to the the people of God in, in, in exile. Jeremiah, you know, he says to them, you're going to be here, guys, for the next 70 years, so I want you to build houses, and I want you to... Um, You know, give your sons and daughters in marriage an increasing number. uh, And then he says to them, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so if if God's opinion, God's purpose, God's agenda matters most to us, then we need to build lives uh, and build time into our lives uh, and be in places where we're around and we're surrounding ourselves with his purpose and agenda, where where we're engaged with what he's doing, that where his kingdom activity is being outworked in our world. You see, what Daniel challenges us to do is... Is not just be a people who pray when the crisis comes. You know, Daniel wasn't just responding to the crisis; this was a lifestyle thing. But actually, and we're called to be a people who build intentional lifestyle rooted in prayer. So often, prayer is our last resort. And 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 in one, if it is our last resort, at least we know. We've come to the end of ourselves. But that isn't enough. We have to build rhythms of prayer into our life. You see, the real battle for Daniel wasn't done in the lion's den. But the real battle was done on his knees, in communion with God, in prayer. That's where the battle was won. And so what happens as a result of Daniel doing battle in prayer well, these guys, they catch Daniel praying, um, and they go and tell the king. And they say to Darius, we've, we've caught Daniel. He's refusing uh, to, to stop praying to his God. And so just to remind you, king, you've made this decree. <laughs> you've made this decree, and so we need, to, we need to get Daniel. We need to chuck him in the lion's den. And so that's what they do. The king is quite reluctant about it. But he has to go through with the decree that is made. And so they, they seal the den and leave him in there with the lions. And it says, it says this in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lion's? And Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angels, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave an order uh, to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wounds were found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now, one thing that we don't know about this story is the detail of what happened um, to the lions. You know, God sent this 10-foot angel down into the den. He put a muzzle on the lions or drugged them. or some, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what he did. Uh, but we don't get that detail. But what, what the writer does draw attention to is the king. It's almost as if God's saying, don't worry about Daniel. That's all sorted, but look at what's going on for the king. The king, who can't sleep at night because he needs to know if Daniel survived, and so the first thing in the morning he runs down to the lions' den. He's like, Daniel, servant of God, has he rescued you? Are you safe? And Daniel replies, Yes. And and actually, this and it's in this moment that Daniel um, at, at this time. Um, he defends himself for the first time. He says, they, they've not hurt me because I've, I've been found innocent in your sight, nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. And then the king says this in verse 25. The king, uh, the king Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and, and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, Daniel was a man fully engaged in his culture, the culture around him. And yet at the same time, he remains distinctive. And when his moment comes to stand, he, he courageously does without any kind of compromise. He, because he's, he's the kind of person who's invested in himself in God. He's invested in himself on his knees with his father at least three times a day. And so he's there. He's a person who's invested for the long haul. And as a result of that, there's this kind of... Resilience created to the narrative of the culture going on around him. And in in the process of practicing this resilience and, 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 and choosing to participate in a redemptive kind of way, he finds favor. He finds more position. He finds more opportunity to shape the redemptive story of Babylon. Not just the redemptive story of where he longs to be back, but actually the redemptive story of where he finds himself. And it says in verse 20, 28, "That Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius." You know, the, here's the thing, and you know one of the reasons why we're doing this, this kind of teaching series is because we believe this, this is the posture that we find ourselves in as the church. You know, the church is, we're, we're, we're kind of a people in exile. We're, we're a people living as a minority in a culture that tells a different story. And actually, I think God wants to do something wonderful because we find ourselves in that position. That God wants to move in amazing ways because we find ourselves in that place. That he, he wants us to be a people who creatively participate with the world around us and make a, make a difference in a redemptive kind of way. That as we seek the peace and prosperity of our city, as we, as we pray for God's redemptive power uh, to come and change, change the, the, the climate around us, we believe God's going to come and move, that he's going to move in powerful ways. He's going to do amazing things amongst us. But, you know, that redemptive participation, that, that place of being a creative minority, it doesn't start in rooms like this. It doesn't. Most people in our city don't know you're here right now. They don't care because they're at BQ, they're at Starbucks. I don't, know, I don't know what people do on a Sunday morning, um, sleeping in. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. But being a creative minority... Taking, finding our place in the redemptive participatory, um input into our culture doesn't start in this room. It starts in, in our workplaces. It starts in our neighbourhoods. It starts in the places that we inhabit. It starts uh, with the people that we find ourselves around. Uh, and if we're going to play our part in rewriting the redemptive history of Northamptonshire... Uh, if we want to see Northamptonshire prosper and, and become all that it's meant to be, then it starts out there. It doesn't start in here. And so the challenge for all of us is, is you know, we're all going to go to work tomorrow. I'm not. I'm going to have a day off. Um, um, we're all going to go to work tomorrow, and, and, and we have the opportunity... To, to, to take part in something that is redemptively good, something that makes a difference uh, for, for the long haul. To be a people who are redemptively participating in our world. That, that's our hope and that's our, that's our prayer. And it starts on our knees. It starts in that place of being a people of prayer, a people who, who are fully engaged with our Father in heaven, who, who know the voice of the Lord, who, who trust him, know that he has everything in hand, that when, when the crisis comes, when the challenges come, when the tension presses in, we don't, we don't run away and critique and we don't blend in, but we choose to be different. We choose to be distinctive.